Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Please be seated. Well, tomorrow is Christmas Day, and so later today, I guess, is Christmas Eve. But this morning, this morning is the fourth Sunday in Advent. So the sermon this morning will be an almost Christmas sermon. I've called it the great announcement of hope, the last in our Crescendo of Hope series leading up to Christmas. And we turn today to the reading you heard for the Gospel, Luke 1, 26 through 39. The Annunciation, the great announcement of hope. Now this is one of the most touching and well-known scenes in Scripture. The angel, the young woman, the momentous announcement. And so much art captures the scene. Here's some of the ways it's been done. There's Leonardo da Vinci. Very famous. Botticelli. Going back a bit. A 14th century icon. Paolo de Matias, 17th, whoops. I'm having trouble here again. Paolo de Matias, 18th century. This is one I find very interesting. By He Kui, who is a contemporary Chinese Christian. The next one is uh, unusual in that, not that. Thank you. No. It's unusual, I can't, it's unusual, I can't get to state. There, thank you. Unusual, thanks, yes, at the back in that this one by James Christensen, an American who died just a few years ago, captures the scene without the angel, but you sense the angel's presence. And the last one is kind of, uh, thanks Justin, is a almost suburban <laughs> text. This is by John Collier, who's another contemporary American painter. Thanks Justin. Each of those, and there are, th um, I could spend the entire morning with you, um, going over the paintings that have occurred for this particular scene. It's been such a dominant focus of Western art. <coughs> Each tries in their own way to capture that encounter. Let me read again just the opening words from Luke 1, 26 through to 13, 29. I quote, in the sixth month of Mary's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled by this at his words and wondered what kind of greeting it might be. Now, back then, sorry, today it's famous. Back then, Nazareth was a nothing town. Luke actually has to tell us it's a town in Galilee, he says. Nazareth was a small little village only a few kilometres from the, the old capital of Nazareth, of, of Galilee, Sepphoris, which was a growing city. It had, been, it had been sacked by the Romans and now was being rebuilt. And uh, not far from significant trade routes. But Nazareth is a small village, about, scholars think about 200 people, unprepossessing. I often think about what would be the Sydney version, you know, botany or something, you know. <laughs> Some little place that nothing much you think would ever happen in. But that's where it, he comes. And it's to a humble woman. She is unmarried, we're told. She's a virgin, though she is betrothed. 
In those days, there was a two-stage marriage system. There was the betrothal, which is a formal agreement, and where the bride price is paid, and so you're now legally man and wife, but not come together for a year or so as actual man and wife. It's partly because marriages were conducted much younger in that culture than we'd regard appropriate today. So this young woman is betrothed, but not yet completely married. And the man she's betrothed to is someone called Joseph, we're told, who significantly is a descendant of the great King David. Details like this are going to be important because this event doesn't take place in a vacuum. It's part of a rich ongoing story, the story of Israel, the story of the prequel, which we call the Old Testament, which they just called the scriptures. It was a story which was incomplete as it stood. It's a rich story of how the one true God who made all that is called a childless nomad, one Abraham, to start a family through whom the world would be blessed. The story in which he later, God rescues his people from enslavement in Egypt, leads them through the Red Sea, years of wandering in the desert, till finally they inherit the land he's promised. To these people, the Lord God makes a covenant, a pact, and gives them instructions how they can be his people, his law. It's a story about the one true God making himself known in power, defeating the powers of evil and rescuing his people. But it's also the story of God judging his people for their faithlessness to the very covenant he made with them and sending them back into exile, reversing, as it were, his rescue. And the scriptures end with Israel, well, the exile is over, but not over. Even when they do return in dribs and drabs to their land, it's only to be dominated by Persia or Greece. True, there's a period of relative autonomy, but even when the New Testament opens, they're dominated again, this time by the great power, the great Mediterranean power of Rome. The gods of the nations, the idolaters, the polytheists, seem to be triumphant. And God's promises lay unfulfilled. In particular, he's promised that a descendant of David would continually reign over Israel and give them peace from their enemies. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, the young woman's name is Mary. Actually, that's an anglicized version of the name Miriam, Miriam. Most of the Marys in the New Testament are actually called Miriam after the famous sister of Moses at the Exodus. Miriam or Mary was a very popular name. Scholars think that up to 50% of Jewish women in the first century were called Miriam, Mary. And you see that because even in the number of people, look later on the Gospels when the women who go to the tomb, I think there are a number, more than one Mary just amongst a small handful of women. Perhaps we should call this one Mary of Nazareth, although given how many Marys there were, there may have been more, even little Nazareth may have had more than one Mary. <laughs> we don't know how old she is, but rather much younger than I think we would regard today as someone who was betrothed. And this Mary is confronted by an angel called Gabriel, a mighty messenger from God. A spirit being, the name Gabriel actually means God is strong. 
or man of God. Gabriel is the only angel who we have named in the Gospels. Again, we have no idea what Gabriel looked like, although probably he was not winged. Now, almost all angels, I don't think in the Bible, I know this is annoying to hear say this, but I don't think many of the angels in the Bible are winged. How do I, why do I say that? Because in many times people confuse them with normal people. There are winged angels, of course. The ones when, when Isaiah sees his temple vision of the Lord enthroned, he sees these fearsome seraphim with six wings crying out before the Lord. Which means that, unfortunately, most of those paintings are wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry to be such a, such a Scrooge at Christmas. Well, whatever he looked like, he greets her. Greetings, he says, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you which really throws Mary greatly troubled. What, what is this? And he says to her, do not be afraid. Something angels often say when you first meet them, for obvious reasons. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. I think the old translation, full of grace, is probably not accurate. Better say, you have found favour with God. God's favour is on her, is the point. It's the free, greatest choice of God. Now, what's this about? There are three aspects to this encounter. I put, you'll see the notes there. There's the promise, there's the problem, and there's the permission. The promise is in verse 30 through 33. Let me read that again. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The promise is that she will conceive and give birth to a son. But three things about this son that make him so different. Well, perhaps not the first one, because you were to call his name Jesus. Now, in itself, Jesus is not an unusual name. These scholars, with nothing much better to do with their lives, have worked out the frequency of names amongst Jewish men and women in the 200 years around the first century, and Jesus is the sixth most popular name in Palestine, after Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, and John. By the way, Miriam, of course, is number one for women. However, Jesus is a Greek form of the Old Testament name Yeshua, Joshua, which means God saves, Yah saved, Yeshua. In fact, the language may not have even been in Greek. The angel may have spoken in Aramaic or Hebrew. So his name is the name, not just of the great leader who succeeded Moses, but a name filled with promise. His name is the Lord saves. Secondly, his status. Quote, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. Very significant. Son of the Most High, Son of God. Now, the phrase Son of God is one of those phrases that has depths of meaning to it. A Son of God need only mean, at one level, a special person with a special relation to God. But here, it has echoes of something much, much deeper. Something much, much deeper. 
And finally, his role. And this is the significant one. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, that means his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That is, he'll reign on David's throne, the throne that is now empty. And interesting, the phrase son of God is used in the scriptures when the Lord makes a promise to David that his son will reign on his throne. I'm thinking here of 2 Samuel 7 from verse 12, where the Lord via the prophet Nathan says this to David, and I quote, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son, end of quote. Now, like so many Old Testament words of prophecy, they have kind of an immediate and a distant meaning. Immediately, that's Solomon, who does build a house, that is the temple for the Lord. But there's a deeper promise here of great David's greater son, who will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, when Gabriel spoke to Mary, there was no Davidic king reigning at all. There was Herod, the Roman Jewish client king, who had been declared king of the Judeans by the Roman Senate. Tells you where his authority came from, doesn't it? And whose despotic rule was coming to its troubled end even at this time. But no Davidic king. The promise lay empty until now. And this king is promised that his throne will be established forever. Now, because kings in Israel were commissioned by being anointed with oil, such kings could be called the Lord's anointed, the Lord's commissioned. In Hebrew, Mashiach, from which we get the word anglicized form Messiah, or the Greek, Hokristos, from which we get the word the Christ. It means the anointed, the Messiah. You see this in Psalm 2, another psalm about God's king reigning. Psalm 2, which is, heads up the whole collection of psalms, which were gathered together, by the way, when there was no king at the time, so it's not just a psalm about the present, it's a prophetic psalm. The psalm imagines the nations of the earth rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ, against his Messiah, against his king. But God laughs at them because he has installed, he says, my king on Zion. And then in verse 7 of Psalm 2, we hear, as it were, the voice of the king himself. And here's what he says, and I quote, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me, and I will give, make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So those are all the promises gathered up in the words of Gabriel to Mary. This child will be called Yeshua, God saves. He'll be called a son of God and he'll reign on the throne of David forever, says the angel to Mary.
which leaves secondly after the promise the problem. How can this be? She asks, since I'm a virgin. Now this is a question that some have puzzled about because why didn't you just simply the promise as well when she and Joseph come together they'll have a kid and bear us up then but now she's taking it immediate she's, she's understanding it now not not then not in a year's time whenever it is they're due to come together she's betrothed maybe just betrothed we don't know how long she is into the betrothal but not yet fully wife whatever the reason she asks the answer from the angelic being is astounding the angel answered the holy spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you that is, this child's conception will be a result of the God's creative power. And the consequence will be, quote, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now we're stepping up a bit. <laughs> Not just Son of God as King, but Son of God in some other more powerful way. Holy One, Son of God. Now this is not a literal conception in which God plays the role of the male. It's a miraculous conception by the Spirit which means something very special in this particular child. Not just inspired by the Spirit as a prophet, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And as a sign that God can do it, the, the angel mentions Mary, Mary's very, ancient, very old cousin down south in the hill country of Judea, who is way past childbearing, or so it was thought. The angel says, and there's, there's Mary who's too young and there's Elizabeth who's too old, right, basically. But the angel says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. Second trimester, isn't it? Almost third trimester. For no word from God will ever fail. There's the key. No word from God will ever fail. The power of the promise of God to do the impossible which means that this Jesus is human, like us in every respect, fully human. And yet there is a difference as well. The virginial conception means he's more than merely human. We know that he is God, the divine son, as we've just said in our creed, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Who he is, is God, the eternal son. Is that what's expressed in the virginal conception? I know it's called virgin birth, but that's slightly, I think, missing the point. It's virginal conception. This leads to the third and last P, the permission, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. There's more to come, but this response of Mary, I think, is very significant. In a sense, she is giving permission for the incarnation of the Son of God. Her yes, you may say, begins the action of the gospel. And that's why she truly is, as some early manuscripts of Luke have, in fact, in the angel's greeting, although some think it may not be original, the extra phrase, blessed are you among women, among all women, may not be literally what, what is recorded, but it's certainly a true statement nonetheless. Although it is sad, I think, that it's at this very point 
that Mary of Nazareth becomes a person of controversy and division among Christian churches. Some want to make a really, really big deal of Mary's cooperating with God and human salvation, and others, perhaps in reaction, tend to want to play it down. You may remember way back beginning of this year, we, we, did, a, we did a little series on Mary during, during January, and I cited the comment by American scholar A.T. Robinson, over 100 years ago I think he made this comment, but I still think it's pertinent today. He said, and I quote, I have felt for many years that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has not had a fair treatment from either Protestants or Catholics. Not a fair treatment from either Protestants or Catholics. Now, I'm not going to go today into any of the details. There's some claims that I think over, overestimate her and then don't give, by doing so give her unfair treatment, which I don't think are attested in Scripture, like that she was continually a virgin, that on her death was assumed bodily to heaven, what's called the assumption, that from her own conception, she had preserved from original sin by the grace of God, the Immaculate Conception, and most seriously, the view, often unofficial, but in practice, the idea that you can approach Jesus more persuasively by asking for the help of his mother, sort of reading a Mediterranean family context into, into relationship with God, which too easily diminishes both the uniqueness of Christ, his gracious role as our great high priest, who is, understands us, as well as the role of the Holy Spirit, by which we talk, we know him. We don't need to get around, as it were. But that overreaction, that overexaltation can lead, on the other hand, an, under an underestimation to diminish his role. After all, don't forget that there are only two other human beings than Jesus mentioned in the creeds, the greatest direct creeds, and she's one of them. The fact that the other is Pontius Pilate may take some gloss out of that, uh, <laughs> that particular honour, I must admit. I must admit. But we must say, yes, she is a most important person in the gospel story. Her humble, may your word to me be fulfilled, opens up the door to the incarnation. Her yes is the first step in the coming of the Christ, who, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, in whom all the promises of God are yes. And we can join with other Christians historically in proclaiming her as the Greek word theototos, meaning the God-bearer, or the one who, who gave birth to the one who is God. The one who gave birth to the one who is God, which was a crucial term back in the 4th and 5th centuries in the debate about the true nature of the divinity of Jesus. Perhaps the best way to understand her is to see her as a parallel with the, the other figure at the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptizer. Both Mary and John are crucial figures in the coming of the Son of God. And both, as it were, reach back into the Old Testament world, if I can use that language, and, and bridge to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The angel Gabriel came to a woman, to a village called Nazareth, to a woman called Mary. Both are people of the Holy Spirit. John is filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born, Mary has the power of the Holy Spirit overshadow her. And both are highly acclaimed. Mary may indeed be blessed among all women. And John is one of whom our Lord himself said, there is no one born of woman greater than he. And both remind us that Jesus Christ did not come out of the blue, but in and with other human agency. In and with other human agency. 
However, we will not stop our reflection on our remarkable story here. That would be to make the very mistake we mustn't make. The focus is to be on her yet unborn, and I guess at the moment, yet unconceived son of Mary, as the, Mary, as, as the, as the angel lives there. And there's so much of the story to be unfolded, even as Luke, if I stay with Luke, relates it. This story will come to a climax some three decades later in the great city of Jerusalem itself, at the temple when crowds are gathered, on the day of Pentecost, a Jewish feast, when Peter, one of this man's disciples, gets up before the crowd, as we read next to, and makes the announcement that God swore an oath to David that he'd put one of David's descendants on the throne. And recounting the recent events, Peter concludes his address. Therefore, he says, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In the resurrection, the words of the angel are now fulfilled. And as you said a moment ago in the creed, and his kingdom will have no end, quoting the angel Gabriel. Luke writes a two-volume work, as you may know, the second volume called Acts. How does Acts end? Way now, way away, we're now years later, maybe a decade later, maybe even longer. We're in Rome, the great capital of the Mediterranean superpower, and there is Paul himself proclaiming. And what does he proclaim? I go to the very last sentence, Acts 28, 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and our hindrance. The God's reign and the Lord Jesus Christ anointed. It's all there in one phrase the fulfilment of the words to Mary by the angel. And that, my dear brother and sister, ladies and gentlemen, is the great hope which is announced. The great hope. That is now past, but it's also present. For today, he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning until all his enemies are under his feet. The last one will be death itself. And he will judge the living and the dead. And therefore, we are called not merely to wonder, though we may, but to turn to him and let him be Lord of our own lives and destinies.